Hi, it's Jennifer Diane Ghostin, and welcome to Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land. You may have wondered what reunion looks like from an adoptee's point of view, or be embarking upon taking that journey yourself to search for your first family, or simply want confirmation that you are not alone in your experience, wherever you are on the path of healing and pushing through a trauma. Wouldn't it be empowering to have many of your burning questions answered here? In this episode, you will get the opportunity to hear the words of someone involved in the adoption community for over three decades. His name is Craig S. Hyman. He received up-close and personal profound guidance from well-known members of the community like Florence Fisher and Betty Jean Lipton. Craig lists B.J. Lipton as a close friend and a lifelong mentor, especially in his immediate post-reunion years up until her passing. Craig will share part of his adoption journey and how he navigated his way as an adoptee when DNA connections wasn't yet a thing. Craig has been in reunion with all members of his biological families since 1987. As an adopted person, he has experienced the death of separation, trauma from blood relatives, as well as a transformative healing process of the mind, body, and spirit. Allow me to introduce you to the one and only Craig S. Hyman. Craig, I'm so glad you're taking this opportunity to have a conversation with me. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thank you, Jennifer. Thank you. I'm so happy to be talking to you today and be connected with you once again. I know we haven't spoken in a little while, but I'm so glad you contacted me and I'm honored to do your your podcast with you. Well, thank you. I'm honored to have you. I know you've been involved with the adoption community for a long time and we met 10 years ago, I think maybe 2011. We don't see each other very often, but from that time to this, I feel like we just can pick up wherever we left off, and it's really nice. I think that's a, one of the best things about being connected to the community. What are the three most important things that you want the audience, the listeners, to know and feel about your adoption journey? That's a great question, Jennifer. I think the first thing would be my awareness that there's a, a great lack of understanding and compassion in our society about adoption and its many complexities, you know, mostly due to the lack of education on the subject. You know, as an example, might be like, you know, say, so you're, you're, there's an infant, right? I was an infant, I was a baby, and I needed a home. There were a set of parents that couldn't conceive, so they wanted a baby. And once you put the two together, there's a belief in our society that everybody lives happily ever after. That's not reality. That's where all the complexities and difficulties begin to surface. Although for the infant, well, for the infant and in turn the adoptive parents, but the reality is that it's already begun in the womb for the infant. There's a great book I read years ago during my reunion called Babies Remember Birth by a Dr. Chamberlain. Mm. So I guess that'd be one thing. The other is that I've I've become crystal clear on the realization that there just needs to be greater education about adoption and the psychology and spiritual aspects of adoption for the general public, of course, and also at the education university levels that teach classes on development and psychology. But 
you know, just as importantly, I think for adopt, maybe most importantly for adoptive parents and foster parents and social workers, people like that. I think the third one would be that no matter what, I and all adoptees are entitled to know who we are and where we came from and what happened to us starting from our origins. And no matter what anyone else may think, this is our birthright, in my opinion. And anyone who thinks otherwise should be excluded from that part of our lives during that time period. And I sort of gleaned this from my early days. I don't know if you know who Florence Fisher is, but she used to run Alma and run these these support groups for people searching. That was so formative to me because during my search, she had these these groups in New York City where I was living that were like 125 adoptees. You know, sometimes people have agendas and they don't realize that they're not being helpful. Like I may have a friend or relative that thinks their role is to discourage me from searching in a reunion because it may upset my adopted parents or something like that. The reality is this has nothing to do with anyone but me and my own identity and all adoptees' identities. So Florence Fisher, one of the first things that I learned from her was that if somebody is not supporting your effort, because she believed what I believe is we're entitled to this, to maybe a first, one, at least one meeting, reunion meeting, to know who we are. Mm-hmm. That if you're not supported in that effort, because it's hard enough, I mean, very complex, that you should exclude people, keep them out of that part of your life or your life until you've gone through the process for a certain period of time. Um, you know, we're all entitled we're entitled to all of this, including, you know, like I said, at least one meeting, in my opinion. I love her style of writing and the story is it's heartbreaking. She's a, was amazing. I mean, she literally changed my life. I went to these meetings and I mean, the first one, I learned more about who I was and what I was going through and what I was entitled to and how to go about it than any support group or anything I read. You know, she was a little, really small person, like five, just over five feet. And, you know, at the same time, she was like a really powerful <laughs> drill sergeant, you know. <laughs> anyway, she she changed my life. So what would you say is been the most rewarding thing about being connected to the adoption community? That's a great question. <laughs> so I think, you know, not feeling so all alone in the world as an adoptee and then this this the process and the journey that we that we're on for the first 27 years of my life i just i felt like i was i was alone i was lost I, you know my, i felt my my thinking was crazy and that there was something wrong with me and i was confused all the time and nobody knew what i was talking about but once i joined the groups of various support groups and in turn did my search it was like I met all these other people, especially adoptees in the community who were having the same or similar thoughts and thinking that I was, and it was very validating and it helped me sort of, you know, kind of find my way through the the choppy waters of it all, of my, of my mind, so Mm -hmm. to speak. Right. Also rewarding was that the community, you know, led me through my search, which was huge, especially Florence Fisher, as I just previously mentioned, you know, that in turn has helped me to understand who I am on every level. I think what's also important to relay is there's a there's a term that B.J. Lifton created, I believe she created. It's in one of her early books called the Genealogical Bewilderment. And I suffered greatly from that in every way. And what genealogical bewilderment means basically is not knowing, you know, not knowing myself and, and me being foreign to me, being foreign to myself, but at the same time being certain about th- 
<laughs> things about myself. For example, my love for music. You know, music's everything to me. It's been everything since five years old. I work in the music industry, and my birth moms, the whole side of the family, <clears throat> is musical one way or another. Mm. My, cousin, my cousin's a composer. My grandmother was a jazz singer. My mother was a performer at the Unwin Mother's Home when I was growing in her womb, and it goes on and on and on. But at the same time, knowing that I have this love for music, right, but always being in doubt of it and and, and doubt of everything really about myself on every level, especially physically and and with various personality traits, because I suffer from genealogical bewilderment. So via my search, finding my biological parents and relatives, that allowed me to understand and connect with myself on a whole new level, which I could not have done without the aid and support of the adoption community, but even more importantly, the support groups especially the post-reunion support groups. I'll elaborate in a minute on the difference between pre- and post-reunion support groups and why I started creating post-reunion support groups. But this gave me a place, you know, to process it all for as long as that took because others there, you know, they knew what the hell I was talking about and experiencing. (laughs) While the rest of society, even the therapists who I was paying, I was only educating them and they didn't know what I was talking about or how to help them. Until my reunion, I went to support groups that were just general. After my reunion, myself and another adoptee in New York came to the realization that we needed a separate group for people who are in reunion, Mm -hmm. have already found, because that was such a whole nother set of, as my Jewish grandmother would say, Mishigas, a whole bunch of stuff Mm -hmm. and busyness and issues in our head that was overwhelming. Being able to sit down with others going through it was extremely helpful because that's even more complex than the just sort of deciding to search and searching. Anyway, I think, you know, what else I got from the sort of most rewarding about being connected to the adoption community might be that, you know, this all led to the crystal clear awareness that the bulk of who we are, who I am, I should speak for myself, is genetic. You know, while environment grooms and impacts us, a lot of genetics, in my opinion, is that is that which is running the show most of the time, whether we like it or not. But I think in conclusion on that topic, I think all of this led to me at about 12 years after my reunion and heavy processing to being able to start to help others, being my adoption coaching, my support group, my inside out seminar which all meant the world to me, to be able to help others in particular and give back. In 1987, when I was jumping from therapist to therapist, paying them, educating them about my adoption issues, without any real support or healing from them, I swore that someday I would always be there for the other adoptees, no matter what it took, as I never wanted anyone to go through what I went through all alone back in 1987. And fortunately, thank God, Um, After about a year of this frustrating and painful cycle, a birth mother, a close friend of mine, Myra Ribbon, introduced me to B.J. Lifton, who B.J. became my therapist for 10 sessions. Now, this was only 10 sessions because she wasn't yet licensed, so she was allowed legally to do 10 sessions. So we met at her home in New York, and this not only saved but completely changed my life, and in turn, created a lifelong friendship between BJ and, my, and I, and she really was my mentor. And then she led me to, a, introduced me to a great therapist in New York who I worked with for, <clears throat> pardon me, a few years, and it was just fantastic. So, you know, I owe a lot to BJ. 
Yes, when I found out that you personally knew B.J. Lifton and that she was a close friend and a long mentor, I just thought, what a gift. I'm sure it both ways, I'm, I'm, I'm sure of it, because to know you, you, you're so committed to the community, and giving back is something I also agree with, and I'm thinking I want to be able to give to the newcomer, right, to, the, to those people just coming in, pour into them like people like yourself, and others poured into me, because you've been a part of the community a long time, and so let's see, how do you best keep from having burnout when, when serving the community? Right. That's a good question. Well, just quickly on the BJ note. Yeah, I just, you know, this whole adoption experience for me, as hard as it's been and as painful as it's been pre-reunion and even sometimes during reunion, I feel that it was God's will for me to have this experience, that this was part of my path. So I feel a great responsibility to always being there to support others going through this experience. Yeah, I just feel like it's my responsibility. And and thanks to BJ, she gave me a lot of tools and saved me. Mm -hmm. But um, to answer your question, how to best keep from having burnout? Uh, when serving this community, the adoption community, I guess I would just say it can't be the only or all-consuming part of your life. I know that's hard when you're going through it because it seems like that's all there is. That's all you want to process. That's all you want to move forward. Your head's a busy place, to say the least. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But I think that it can't be the only part of your life. I think in order to survive it well, You need to take breaks from it and not only take breaks from it, but also have other things in your life to fill your mind, your body and your spirit outside of the adoption world. I often think of things that like save me, like navigating my experience as an adoptee through the years. Music is one of them and writing certainly Mm. is another. Moving away from adoption sometimes, like even with podcasts, I listen to different kinds of podcasts that have nothing to do with adoption. And I do know it is important to have other things that you are part of that are important and meaningful and rewarding. Yeah, so I do agree. What do you think is really important for the newcomer to the adoption community to know? Oh, wow. So let's see. Well, I think... (laughs) I think it's important to know that it's going to get harder and maybe more painful before it gets easier and better at the beginning, at least. Mm. But to know that it is this is this is your journey and, it, and to it all getting better sooner than later. And it's almost 100 percent assured to be better than it than it was. I think that um, while there are so many identical aspects to people's you know, adoptees in particular stories, at the same time, each and every story is unique. Therefore, the journey and experience will be different from everyone else's in the adoption constellation but or the, amongst adoptees, but at the same time similar. And so, you know, having this community will help you stay sane and having a support system is a great part of the healing process will only work in your favor. I think it's just also important to be patient and take breaks from it 
um, as I mentioned earlier. One thing that I thought was one of the best tools that Florence Fisher also gave me was keeping a very detailed, not only journal of my feelings, but a separate entry notebook. Every action I did, every person I spoke to, everything I did, dated and the information about that. It was so therapeutic, but it also allowed me to go back and look, especially during my search. It allowed me to go back and look who I spoke to, what I told them, because obviously, you know, when I did my search, it was pre-internet and I had to do a lot of things that weren't completely kosher, so to speak. So I would say, you know, be patient, take breaks, keep the, the journal and notebook, have a support system out, inside and outside the adoption community. It's important have other things going on in your life, even if it's a simple hobby like model cars, playing chess, <laughs> whatever it is. Right. You have to have some kind of diversion, some kind of because I think if you put all your mental eggs, so to speak, in this basket, it, it'll explode. And you want to avoid that. You want to be able to keep moving forward. Sometimes it's two steps forward, one step back. I think the most important thing though is to find the healthy people in the community that seem to be having healthy and productive lives and reunions that are sincerely there to support you and never tell you what to do, but instead give you support and information that you need to make your own difficult decisions. You know, in conclusion on this topic, I think what I would say is, unfortunately, and I'm sure this is true in all worlds, but unfortunately, regardless of what aspect of the adoption constellation someone's coming from, we all have baggage, and most people in this community come loaded with baggage and agendas. So you want to stick with those who seem to have a handle on this, have some healing time under their belt, already invested you know, in, in healing and getting healthier, and that truly want to just help the next guy or gal unconditionally. I think that's the best advice I can give. <laughs> Well, that's great advice. That's great guidance. I like what you said and and everything you said. I really appreciate hearing you talk about the journaling because keeping a journal for me when I embarked upon search and reunion was really key. Like you said, everybody I talked to, if I made a phone call, I even put like the time. That proved to be one of the best things I could have done because when I do look back at it, like I can put myself back when I was, um, you know, there in that space. And it's something nice about being able to do that and to see how far I've come, like the growth I've made. I think that's a really good good idea. Yeah, I hear the, the adoption life coach Absolutely. all in your words. <laughs> yeah. Yes. You know, um, I think that the journaling, you know, when I coach people, especially adoptees who are searching, the first requirement I give them is to do this notebook, to do two parts, the journal, to write down their emotions and the things they're feeling and personal things that they're going through, how it's impacting relationships, but also this sort of more business-like um, notebook of like you just talked about, dates, times, people you spoke to, everything related to the search. Because what happens is, as you know, it's all so overwhelming and our heads are in such a busy place mm -hmm. and it's a damn burst of thought and emotion that I know when I've gone back and reread re some of either of those books, like I don't remember half of that stuff because at the time what I was going through was so huge 
I couldn't have any clarity on what was going on. So I just followed advice, Florence Fisher's advice, write it all down. Someday you'll be able to, in a week, a month, a year, it'll come in handy. And then you have it for life. And it, it, it did and it does. Mm-hmm. So, Craig, do you want to talk a little bit about being the creator of Inside Out, the Expressive Arts Adoption Healing Seminar? Sure. Yeah, I'd love to. Thank you. What happened was, you know, I've, I've been in therapy since I'm nine years old. <laughs> I'm a professional therapy patient. I'm 63 now. I've done all types of therapy. I mean, you pick one, I've done it. You know, I've been involved with everything, being in a support group, being in group therapy. Actually, there's a book B.J. Lifton wrote, wrote that I forgot the title, which she took. She put me and a bunch of other male adoptees, small group, in her living room and let us have a meeting. And she just wrote about it and, and took notes. Long story short, you know, I've, I've sort of been involved. I'm a spiritual person, not particularly religious, um, but I'm spiritual. I've had a lot of involvement working at Omega Institute, New York Open Center. I'm a fan of and knew Ram Das when he was alive and mm. Spirit Rock Meditation Center. And all this combined that I'm listing now with most importantly, a four and a half year uh, therapeutic process, art therapy process in Berkeley, California, all those things combined sort of brought me to a place where I had, I think, I don't think I'm ever completely healed, but in as much healing as I'm probably going to experience and then the ability in turn to help others. So what I, what I saw that was missing was, you know, I just, there are other, some other great seminars, but I just felt like there was one that wasn't encompassing all this stuff, especially spirituality, which I was having an ongoing dialogue with BJ about, BJ Lifton, before she passed away, because it was something that she's very much a scientist, you know, a sort of mental person. And it wasn't towards the end of her life that she was kind of grasping the concept of spirituality. She, she couldn't separate it from religion for a long time. Long story, long intro shorter. <laughs> I took all... There are various aspects of all the different therapies I've done and spiritual work. The bulk of it comes from the, the art therapy process through painting and drawing and so on, because that was the most impactful. And I took all the stuff that worked and I sort of built something from simple to slightly more complex. You know, the workshops an eight hour intensive day with like a half hour, hour for lunch, it all builds from, simple spiritual practices and, and mostly creative work and journaling and writing and drawing and so on to role play. Much to my surprise, it, it's worked famously for people. I mean, a lot of people have come up to me at the end of the seminar and said, you know, that was like a year's worth of therapy. <laughs> <laughs> I got in one day, you know, and it was really successful and I'm really proud of it. And, you know, As you should be, country. yes, you should, because Thank I got you. to a- attend in Chicago. Well, right. yes. <laughs> yeah, Thank you. I forgot all about it. <laughs> so I'm really proud of it. I, you know, I took it all around the U.S. You know, the work of promoting it was became like a full time job, and I, you know, I have my own career and other stuff going on. So 
I only kind of do it when an organization or an individual wants to sponsor it and bring me in and do it. And I still do it. And it's still as exciting as and effective as ever. I just haven't been doing it lately because there hasn't been mostly because of the pandemic a request to do so. But but I'm I'd love to. If someone were interested. Oh yeah, I highly recommend it. And maybe you'll bring it to Nashville. <laughs> you, you like Nashville. I'd love to. <laughs> I love Nashville. A lot of friends there. <laughs> yes. Well, do you want to talk a little bit about your journey before search sure. and reunion and then search and reunion? <laughs> I'd, I'd be happy to. Is there anything in specific in particular that you'd like me to cover or include? Some of the questions that do come up from listeners is, is this person a late discovery or when did they learn they were adopted? And then how are the adoptive parents? And some people's situations are really not good, and some are very, very pleased, and they can separate that from still wanting to know their original family. Like, that was me. I had a great childhood. I had great parents. So, yeah, whatever you want to share about how you saw your experience and how it went. Well, yeah. So my story is that my... My biological parents were high school sweethearts, and they got pregnant, and they were separated by my birth father's mother. And my birth mother was sent to an unwed mother's home. Where in the unwed mother's home, she was the Saturday night entertainment. She used to sing and play piano. And for many years of my life, that used to resonate so deeply and uncontrollably that I would have a burst of emotions, not ever knowing why, until I did my search, found her. But what's important is um, she didn't want to give me up and she wouldn't sign the papers. So I wound up in foster care somewhere, I think Queens or Long Island, for 10 months, which I know had a very deep uh, impact on my life, not so positively. However, I just know that through deep therapeutic work, but I don't can't find the birth, the foster family. I was adopted. My my mom miscarried many times. My adopted mom and they couldn't have a child. And then we were able to adopt me through Spence Chapin Agency in New York. And then my mom got pregnant um, and had my brother and sister <laughs> soon thereafter. Mm. I grew up in um, you know typical middle class American New Jersey family. I never had a great relationship with my father. He was extremely narcissistic and psychologically abusive. But my mother was, you know, she was sort of like Mother Teresa. She just was the best thing that ever happened to me. Mm. And, you know, I, I should say that, you know, I have a lot of feelings about adoption, It's which is almost a whole other conversation. You know, as BJ used to say, like, you know, there are always going to be kids who need parents and families and loving parents who want to have kids and I believe that but at the same time as far as adoption is concerned like personally in my life I want as little to do with it as possible the act of adopting Mm -hmm. but at the same time I think there's this whole other spiritual aspect to it where I think sometimes as souls we choose this in our next lifetime but that's another and that's a conversation i do want to have if you come back because i can i can get into that with you for real when when you said omega i because i've been wanting to go and do that 
Oh yeah, I ran production department there for oh, four I, and a half I, months. I, I, that was on my vision board for many years. I did get to do celebrate your life uh, that came near Chicago. Oh good. Yeah, we two can years. talk about that. Yeah, we can talk about that are, stuff. Are we but still yeah. rolling? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. We are okay. So I had a great family. You know, I was other than my father, I was really close to my mother. I, I, I was, I would say that she really gave me a life, and could not have been better. Mm. She had her own baggage too, which was hard, like any parents. You know, I was really lucky, and I only say this because knowing my biological parents who are now um, well father's deceased knowing them as you know for all these years I know that I was much better off and that without getting into detail I might not be here at all or in great shape if I were raised by one or either of them Mm -hmm. so what happened was I think as early as nine years old I just remember well let me take a step back the earliest memories of life, and according to my adopted parents, at year, I think they, so they brought me home from the agency. I was 11 months. They started immediately showing me the chosen baby storybooks and telling me, explaining what adoption was and how that I was an adoptee and et cetera. And they used to do this every month or so. And I remember somewhere around three years old or just before having this bird's eye view of the room, the bedspread, we were sitting on the bed and they were showing me the books. It was the moment that I got it, that I understood what it meant to be adopted. It was life altering. And I feel like I had a body experience and that's why I can see down. I have, when I think of it, I have this view from above the room, like not from my point of view to my parents. Anyway, it's the day I discovered my anger. And it was it was hard, you know. By the way, I when I was friends with BJ, they they someone had approached her to rewrite or to update those chosen baby story books, which I believe she did. I would just say that I had a um, I was a really good kid with a good heart, and music was everything to me. But I was also troubled. I had a a lot of a lot of issues that I think are pretty related to adoption. Some which I've come to learn were genetic. Yeah, it was complex and complicated, and I never had any intention to search, never had any desire until I was 27, and I was in a really dark period for a number of reasons, and I woke up one day, and I looked in the mirror, and I said, I have to know who I am and where I came from. It's just something to do with what's going on with me now, and I did a, you know, 11-month search, to all these groups used to stand up and say my name at birth is michael andrew fry but i didn't know that until i found it two weeks before finding my birth mom the new york public library um, up until recently publishes every birth in new york city in this massive volume in the 42nd street branch of the genealogical genealogy department and i was able to the second visit find my birth name yeah it, it was during a very troubled dark time in my life where i decided it was time to search and even though six months the previous i had no intention and i did an 11 month search and i found my birth mom who immediately led me to my birth father and things kind of imploded pretty exploded pretty quickly my birth mom she sort of was 
doing the same thing to me as an adult that she did as an infant. That was my experience as an infant. And I tried, I don't know, for eight years to have a relationship with her and it didn't, didn't work. So I don't, I don't have one. And uh, my birth father, although it wasn't ideal, I had a consistent one with him from the moment I met him. You know, I want to go back just a minute. Yep. Yeah. And I'm, I'm sorry. And, and, and I, I'm sorry. No, I'm sorry that. It's fine. That you had to go back and forth, you know, to try to have a relationship with your birth mom. Yeah. Like I, She's I've, very I've been, yeah. And, and I find that the thing that I'm always thinking about is like, what's possible in reunion? You know, like there'll be a whole bunch of things that just aren't possible. Right. But then there are things that are possible. And I kind of lean in that direction now because being in reunion nine years with my maternal side, it, it shifts, you know, things shift through the years. And I'm always asking that question, what's possible now, you know, today? And, and, and because uh, so many people have transitioned in my birth family, it's like I'm always asking that question. So for you, well, first I want to go back to how you got the information because you didn't have your birth certificate, right? No, I didn't have anything. Right. So I mean, literally nothing. Right. How were you able to, because we're talking the 80s, right? Yeah, 80, and, 87, 86, yeah, 87. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and so how were you able to get, like, the information about the adoption agency? How were you able to get that? What I had was called the amended birth certificate. Mm-hmm. And on it... In New York State, I was born in New York City in Queens, in Flushing, Queens. On it, there is my adopted name, Craig Stewart Hyman. There is a letter for the borough you're born in, which was Q, and your birth date. There's a docket number up in the upper right-hand corner, I think it is. It's got five digits. It kind of looks like a Social Security number, but it's part of a longer number, I believe. That's the docket number. And sort of like your fingerprints. It's how they track you uh, or how they their, their filing record system is and keeps track of you. Mm-hmm. So that's on my original birth certificate, which I've since gotten, you know, right after they, the day they opened the records. So I had that, and I knew that I was adopted through Spence Chapin Agency. In New York State, the law is they're required to give you what's called unidentifying information. So I made an appointment, I wrote a letter, I made an appointment, I went in there and they talked to me for, you know, like an hour and a half. And, and I said to them, you know, I was, I was really pot, like, you know, you did a great job. You placed me with a great family or mom, you know, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. At least that, that's how I felt at the time. Then they said, okay, are you ready? You know, and I said, we'll just read everything and then we'll go read it again and, and you can take notes. They gave me first a photo. Like, I don't have any baby pictures. The earliest I had was 11 months when I was adopted. So they gave me a photo that was in the file at 10 months. It must have been, you know, as they were giving me to my parents. Unidentifying information is basically a form that your birth mom fills out, like their interests, their religious background, things like that. Really basic surface stuff but the first thing she said about my birth mom was that she she loved music and loved to sing and play the piano and I started crying Mm. because as a young 
person, you know, listening to the Beatles and the Monkees. And I used to sit at my living room window in Bayonne, New Jersey. I mean, earlier than five years old, I think. And just sing and sing out the window. <clears throat> I came to realize that therapy much later, I was singing with the hopes that she would hear me mm. because I grew in her womb experiencing this vibration and this singing sure. and yeah that was my earliest memory of her this is all subconscious so anyway i went to see spence chapin and i realized that i had this excuse in my head that i, I had wanted medical information and i was really halfway lying to myself because i just wanted to meet them but i wasn't quite grasping that yet and by the time i got out of there you know, I said, well, what if they couldn't give me what I wanted? Thank God. By the time I got out of there, I was like, screw these people. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not. So she's like, oh, think about it over the summer. It was like April 1st. Think about it over the summer. Get back to us. and We'll see what we can do about helping you find them. Or, And I realized that they were not going to help me. And I was on my own. Mm. And I had another phone call with them about it before I started searching and she was sort of quoting things back to me. So I came to the realization that I'm 99% sure that they recorded our, our meeting. So anyway, I started going to support groups. I, the first one I found was I, I knew I was Jewish or my birth mom was Jewish. I knew the date. I knew it was Queens and I knew the. I didn't know anything about the hospital. I knew the adoption agency. So I went to a um, unwed mother's, I'm sorry, I went to a birth mom's meeting and I started going to a few of them and I would always stand up and I would say, this is my adopted name. This is the date I was born. I was adopted through Spence Chapin. I was born in Queens. That's all I know. And one thing led to another and one birth mom also gave up a child around the same time. And she said, you were probably born in Boothamora Hospital. Mm. So I, I had a create a document that said I was not Craig. This is once I found my name in the library. So I said I was Michael Andrew Fry and I needed him for medical reasons. So like a month later, they sent me a letter, sent us a check for 75 bucks. And then a month later, I got a letter from a holding facility, a records facility in Torrance, California. They gave me records of my feeding, some health stuff on there and birth time and date and then it had my birth mother's name on it so mm. then i had a name that i could start tracking did you have a date of um, birth too for myself not for, not her. for her okay no. so i went back to the you know knowing that she was jewish hoping she was born in in new york city i went back to the library and looked up all the harriet fries you know born in she's only 17 years younger than me older than me mm -hmm. and for those the two years that that could be and there were only like 12 in all the all the boroughs of new york and one harriet jumped out at me because harriet happened to be you're gonna love this my my first love and the most important intimate relationship in my life was named harriet wow and i'd only met two harriets in my entire life that's my like a, i call that a synchronicity what do you call it exactly <laughs> i call it an act of god of some sort and i had nothing to do with that one yeah and i started tracking her and 
that was very complex as she was married many times. And then in turn, she was in hiding from her recent husband. And then I had to stop tracking her. I started tracking a half sister, which I learned about in the process. And long story short, you know, that sort of led me to my sister's job that she quit the day before. And um, I was connected to them on the telephone, which I didn't want. I wanted an in-person meeting, which is what I was trained and conditioned by Florence Fisher to do in case I was rejected. At least I had that one meeting. Mm. I'm glad you shared that. Yeah. So the reunion was a whole nother novel. <laughs> <laughs> you said earlier that you connected with your birth father right away, right? The relationship was good right away. Well, I'm not sure how good it was. It was okay. So what happened was the night I found my, the day I found my birth mom, I met, she was with my, my half sister. They were living together in Queens. So I came back to the apartment with them. My birth mom and I just sat up talking like, I don't know, it's like 12 hours. One of the things she brought up, my sister's long asleep at this point, was, are you interested in finding your father? And she kept saying, I think he can help you more than I can. I didn't know what that meant at the time because I was just elated. You know, I was higher than I've ever been. I'm looking at my face for the first time in someone else's. I'm finding out all this information about my my family, my origin. But, you know, I was trained well, thanks to Florence Fisher. And I said, sure, I'd love to talk to and meet my birth father if you are comfortable with that. And really, I was salivating. I was so like, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> so the next day, I slept on the couch, and they slept in their rooms. And the next day, she left me a note and said, come visit me at work. I visited her at work. She was a hairdresser. And then everybody in the shop was just like astonished at my existence and how much we looked alike. Mm. So she came home from work, and she called up. Now, the way she met my birth father, she was friends with his two sisters in Long Island, in Patrick, Long Island. They were young teenagers, and then she started dating and hooking up with my birth father. So she hadn't, I was 27 when I found her. She left Patrick, Long Island when I was three. So she was 24 years the previous. She said it was very painful um, memories there. She was raised kind of without her mother and in foster care during the week and then on the weekends her father and and then me. Um, so she did, hadn't gone back, hadn't spoken to any of those people, my birth father and his sisters. So she says, I think I know where to find your father. This is the day after I met her. And she says, I'm going to call his sister in Lonely. Um, I think they still live there. So she calls my aunt, Bobby. Says, Bobby, hi. It's and I'm like listening in, you know, on the on the phone with her. She says, Hi Bobby, it's Harriet Fry. She goes, Harriet, oh my god, she goes, How have you been? She goes, Harriet says, Fine, how have you been? And my aunt says, How's my nephew? Mm. Meaning me. Mm -hmm. And Harriet said, how do you know 
that's why I was calling you. And my aunt said, I've been waiting for this call for 27 years. Wow. Oh, he's just, I just got chills. Mm. Yeah, I'm going to start crying. Mm. And, um, and she said, I raised my children, everybody to know about him. And I knew one day he'd come back and find oh, us. Oh, my goodness. And then we went to Long Island the next weekend and met, you know, my my two aunts and their kids and husband. And then, and then I, a few weeks later, I met my father. He was in North Carolina. He flew up to meet me. Mm. Yeah. Wow. A <laughs> shout out to your aunt that said that on that call. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty special. And then she put me on the phone, and it was. It was wild. I mean, like yeah. I went to, you know, they had this little party for me. I had sent them some pictures. So they had, you know, I like to drink Heineken. And stuff. So they had all this Heineken. <laughs> <laughs> How nice is that? The, wow. Yeah. <laughs> so so my, my one aunt, Bobby, used to date and was now married to this guy, Billy, who was my uncle Billy. And they used to double date with my father, birth father, Hank, and Harriet, my birth mom. So I'm sitting at this party for me, and my Uncle Billy didn't talk to me the whole day. And uh, it's sort of wrapping up, you know, we're having dessert. And he's, like, sitting behind me, and I could feel him staring at me. And all of a sudden, he says something to the effect of, I can't freaking believe it. I can't believe it. And I turn around, you know, and I want everyone to like me. (laughs) (laughs) Right. It's a whole other conversation, Right, right? I know, I know. (laughs) <laughs> and um, I said, what's that, Uncle Billy? He goes, he goes, I've known Hank, your father, your birth father, since he's about, you know, eight, nine, ten years old. He goes, I swear to God, I've been sitting here with him this whole day mm. in you, just looking at you. It's like you're the spitting image of him. So oh that was a mind goodness. blower. Yeah. I mean, that was before I met him. Right. So, oh, how special. Yeah. Like you really put me at that party. Oh, I like that. Yeah, Thank you. I can just feel the energy through your words yeah, through it was, describing it. That's wonderful. Yeah, it was surreal. <laughs> well, I, I really want to value your time, and, and I hope you do come back and be a guest again because we could talk about some other things, as we've said already. And I would love to. Yeah, there's a couple of topics I think we can have a part two on. Yes, I would really like that. So I look forward to it. And I guess in closing, is there anything I didn't ask you that you you want to leave the listener with today? You know, there's one thing that comes to mind, and I, I'm not sure exactly. It's maybe a little out of context, but it just came to mind while we were talking and I was reliving a lot of this stuff with you. Because, you know, I've been living with it all for so many years and it sort of becomes just, you know, happenstance or whatever, um, unlike how it was in the early years. But I remember watching Oprah Winfrey, who I was a massive fan of. And this is early on after my reunion. Oprah was interviewing Michael Jackson or something. And I remember her saying, and this is around the time when I was having difficulty with my birth mom. It became clear to me why when I first met her, she was saying you should meet your birth father because he can, quote, help you more than I can. And I wasn't looking for help. I was just looking to know myself. But I came to realize she was very unstable. And Oprah used to say, 
when someone shows you who they are and believe them. And that was sort of an awakening. Yeah, that quote, was... yeah, that's a quote that she would say a lot because it was Maya Angelou's quote, which was her mentor and mother-like right. figure. Yeah, Maya would exactly. say, when people show well, you who led... they are, the, believe them the first time. When they show you who they are, believe them the first, believe time. Them the first time. I love that quote. And it took me a long time to learn that. Yeah. I learned it the hard way, but it's fact and it's very helpful. But at the time when I first heard it, it allowed me to process with my birth mom, like, well, this is really who she is. It was a turning point. But that in turn gave sort of, for no pun intended, gave birth to this thought in my head that the only thing, I guess besides my love of music and film or whatever, but the only thing I know for sure about myself is that I'm adopted. What that means is that as an adoptee, I doubt almost everything about myself, even still. And I could say I know this for sure, but somewhere in the back of my mind, my sense of self and the, the certainty about everything that is me, Craig or Michael, whatever name you want to use, I don't know for sure. But the only thing that I know for sure is that I'm adopted, which is the very thing that makes me think this way. Does that make any sense to you? I think so. I know the it's only, a little complicated and a little odd. The only thing you but, know for sure is that you're adopted. I've never, I don't think I've ever heard anyone say it like that. But I've never I, heard I, anyone say it. Um, <laughs> yeah. It just feels like I can question everything about myself, even still at 63 years old. But that's the one thing I know I can't question that I know for sure and I, I never doubt. Right. For what that's worth, I really don't know, but it's something that came to me a long time ago and still rings true. Yeah, I'm gonna be sitting with that long after we end our conversation. So thank you for sharing. And and thank you so much My for pleasure. your your time today and having this conversation with me. I really appreciate it. Well thank you for having me, Jennifer. And I wanna thank you for your podcast and your book and all the work you do on, on behalf of not only the adoption community, but society in general, because we need people like you. <laughs> and you, we like we, you. we all need, we all need each other. And I do think there's an adoptee movement going on right now. And I, I like that. I like that, that I'm a part of it. You're a part of it. And all the other uh, adoptees that are writing memoirs and, having podcasts and platforms and speaking up, I think we're really showing the community at large that it's important that we be heard. It's, it's important for adoptive parents to hear from adult adopted people. And we're, yeah, we're showing up and, and that's, that's a good thing. <laughs> well, you know, I look back, you know, I started this whole thing in 87, which I'm afraid to even think how long ago that is. Back then, there was nothing. <laughs> there were a few meetings, you know, usually only in the big cities. There was no internet, one or two searchers. And, you know, now it's so mainstream, even though we still have work to do and a lot of educating to do, it's so mainstream that I never in my wildest imagination thought we'd be at this place. God, I didn't know what the internet was. It didn't exist. 
I am in complete awe of Craig's major contributions to the adoption community. He honors a lifelong calling to service in the areas of adoption, education, healing, and growth. As the creator and facilitator of Inside Out, the Expressive Arts Adoption Healing Seminar, Craig helps to identify deep wounds, challenges, and uses creative expression to foster healing. I personally experienced his seminar a few years ago in Chicago. He is also founder and facilitator of numerous post-reunion support and growth groups in New York City and Los Angeles, as well as an all-male adoptee global virtual support group for 12 years. Craig is an adoption life coach for adoptees, biological parents, foster parents, adoptive parents, their families, and significant others. And he specializes in the areas of general adoption issues, search, reunion, and post-reunion complexities. Craig resides in Los Angeles, California, and currently facilitates a monthly support group in L.A. for all members of the Adoption Constellation. Craig also coaches and educates globally. Craig can be contacted at craigshyman at gmail.com, and you can find more information regarding Inside Out, the Expressive Arts Adoption Healing Seminar, on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Inside Out Adoption. Thank you, Craig, for having this conversation with me. Your love for the adoption community is obvious, and your longevity is just the right amount of inspiration I need to stay the course, too. I am certain that others will also receive the same encouragement from you. If you are an adoptee and would like to share your adoption journey, please visit JenniferDianeGhostin.com. Thank you so much for being here and be sure and follow me on Instagram at Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land.